This is the Bartholomew Town Podcast. Uh, I would just say that we were all uh, excited by the candidates we've heard about. Uh, we all have enormous confidence in President Biden's judgment. We are very aware of the historic nature of this appointment and very proud of that. Uh, we look forward to a prompt and respectful confirmation process. And to the extent that that process seeks to be disrupted by the same dark money outside organizations that have been involved in packing the court to date, we're going to be prepared to push back very hard against that false pressure. And that there comments from Senator Sheldon Whitehouse last night describing candidates for the soon to be vacant Supreme Court seat. Senator Whitehouse joins us today on the Bartholomew Town podcast to discuss this and much more. It's Bill Bartholomew here with you, welcoming you aboard Rhode Island's podcast of record. Always a pleasure to share your company and always fun to have Senator Whitehouse here on the show. So a lot to get to today. We're going to get right to it. Remember, if you want to support the independent journalism, entertainment, opinion and analysis that B-Town provides, there's a few ways to do so. You may follow Follow, rate, and review wherever you're listening right now. And if you want to go a step further, become a B-Town Insider for as little as $3 per month. Simply head to patreon.com slash Town. You'll get exclusive content, plus you'll be sustaining this program. Patreon.com slash Town. Okay, let's get right to it. My latest conversation with Senator Sheldon Whitehouse here on the Bartholomew Town Podcast. All right, Senator Whitehouse, thanks as always for your time here and... We let off, the the listeners just heard some audio from you last night, essentially describing Supreme Court candidates, for lack of a better term. I guess let's start there, if you don't mind. Sure. You referenced dark money and the infiltration of that into this process. Look, anybody who remotely pays attention to Supreme Court confirmations understands there's a lot more at play than just the simple vetting of a candidate um, based on the merits of their uh, legal prowess, so to speak. So where does this stand right now in your mind? What, what's your message, I guess, on, on evaluating these candidates? And um, you had mentioned you, you trust President Biden's decision-making process on this. Do you believe that whichever candidate the president puts forth will have a, a pathway to confirmation that is unobstructed by the types of outside influences that you described in your, your comments last night? Uh, I actually do think that is a very real prospect because, not out of the kindness of Mitch McConnell's heart, by the way, but because if you're Mitch McConnell, you're looking at a court that you have already captured. You have got a six to three Federalist Society majority that has proven its willingness to do what the big donors want on the right-wing side. So with that kind of power in place over at the court, the last thing you want is a lot of controversy around the court. You'd like a veneer of normalcy. This is fine. Nothing to see here, folks. Um, Plus, you've got some very close elections coming up, and you've got some real knuckle-draggers in the Senate who could easily say very stupid and offensive things that could uh, affect the party's reputation and, you know, Senator Warnock's election in Georgia and so forth. So you want to tamp that down. And ultimately, you know, you can try to restore your own credibility. You know, I, I, 
I can be good to work with. You know, we supported this candidate. Nothing to see here. And in the meantime, you've got your captured court still shoveling the loot out the window to your donors and everybody's happy. So I think in that scenario, it makes a lot of sense for him to moderate his opposition and instead use the hearing for other purposes having to do with the 2022 election or what we're seeing already uh, having to do with pretending that Democrat dark money, you know, just reverse the script. Uh, the Democrat dark money is capturing the court. That's that's an interesting assessment. It's 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 probably a best case scenario at this point in a lot of ways. And I guess thinking back to even Merrick Garland and so on and so forth, you know, it, it do, do you think the fatigue of the American public is something to consider as well? That kind of plays into what you just described. But in terms of American trust in the institutions of power versus this is sort of assessment that it's well, it's it, the, the the government is simply controlled by a few um, all powerful whether creepy it's billionaires, yeah, whatever it is, right? Yeah, creepy right wing billionaires were behind <laughs> the court now. Um, well, you know, I think that the fundamental message to get out right now, um, and the one that I'm pretty persistent about trying to get out is that in the same way that regulatory capture, what's called agency capture, has been a thing with administrative agencies for many decades now. There's you know, a huge literature about it in economics and in administrative law. It's a very, very well-known phenomenon. Um, and these right-wing guys just applied that tactic to the court. And they packed it with people who were, you know, who had made clear that they would rule their way and uh, help that help them with decisions. And I think that has to be made clear because if the court thinks it can get away with what it's doing, it's going to keep tanking um, our American system um, to the benefit of the sort of big money oligarchs and. Um, I don't think they can, they should not be allowed to get away with that. The integrity, the reputation for integrity of the court is an extremely important thing. The only thing that's more important is the actual integrity of the court. That's profound uh, and, and timely. And it, also, it kind of feeds into this next area. This is a local thing here in Rhode Island, but it's happening statewide, uh, pardon me, na- nationally as well. And it's, it's not so much the situation specifically with, all right, should people be wearing masks or not? Should there be masks in schools or not? That debate is uh, sort of at one level. And there are sometimes salient arguments for and against based on the moment. And it's we've seen that evolve. There are obviously things that are scientifically consistent that you know anybody really wants to listen to experts would understand why we were wearing masks or why we would wear masks in certain situations. That seems basic. But we're seeing this um, rise of organized people describing themselves as concerned parents. There were a couple hundred of them that testified at the state house, and they see masking in schools being reverted to local control here in the state as a major victory for their advocacy, where it's probably more tied to just the case count going down. How much of that do you get the, the, the feeling is coming from a similar outside money? 
dark money uh, type of perspective, sort of a scripted perspective versus organically parents experiencing children who are literally being, as they described, abused in school by wearing the mask. Where does that stand in your mind? I think um, I'm sure there are lots of people who are very sincere in their objections, but there is also a very pronounced effort to generate this. And it's an effort that has funded it with tens of millions of dollars of dark money. I'll give you one example that's pertinent to both of your last questions. Um, these days, if you want to play in dark money political manipulation, the state of the art is a pair of organizations that are twinned, a 501c3 under the tax law and a 501c4 under the tax law. Those are the terms for the um, provisions of the tax law under which they're uh, organized. And the 501c3 and the 501c4 are really the same thing. Same address, same employees, same donors. It's just a, a corporate veil between the two. Um, and there's one of these twinned outfits that has what are called under Virginia corporate law, fictitious names. So it's the same group, but it operates under fictitious names. One fictitious name is the Judicial Crisis Network. And they're the ones who are running the ads against Biden's unnamed nominee. Before they even know who she is, they're running ads against her. Uh, dark money funded ads accusing the unnamed nominee of being a dark money stooge. It's really, I mean, it's Putin-esque in its... Uh, uh, creepiness. Uh, they got another one, which is called Honest Elections Project, which goes out and does voter suppression stuff and brings cases before the judges that Judicial Crisis Network campaigned for. And then their other one, they got more. It's like a six-legged bug. Um, their other one is called um, Freedom to Learn or Free to Learn, Free to Learn. And that's geared up to be able to push into the school debates, you know, ire about critical race theory, which isn't even taught in, you know, it's, it's a university thing, not a middle school, elementary school thing. Um, so, you know, you see this one organization and when it's putting up all these fictitious names to deal with these issues and is getting tens of, you know, $15 million checks, $17 million checks, 30 I think $48 million was their biggest check. Um, you know, something's going on behind the scenes here. Let's not kid ourselves. Fictitious yeah. names, dark money, uh, weird uh, organizations that have the same staff but purport to be different. It's That's not normal in politics. Right. And one thing I've noticed as well, and, and sort of from my perspective now working in the afternoon for for a few hours on the local talk radio is when I answer the phone, a lot of times these people are clearly reading scripts. Now that yeah. could just be one person that says, Hey, uh, let me, let me text seven or eight people that I met on a Facebook group and let's get this going. But it's written in such a way that it seems like a template that is distributed on a national basis, or at least on a statewide basis. So it's not. Yeah. Well, I definitely agree. There are people who are passionate about the, these issues that that perhaps I disagree with, or any of us disagree with. But there seems to be, without question, something else going on. Yeah. Um, people can get spun up. It's in our nature to get spun up, and it's not just uh, people. Um, when I 
pointed out how one dark money group called the Bradley Foundation had been involved in um, hiding itself in little flotillas of amicus briefs that it filed in the Supreme Court through, you know, 10 different front groups that it had given money to. Um, the National Review, which is a right-wing publication, and the Wall Street Journal, which is a right-wing publication, both erupted in, you know, outrage that I could be so mean as to make fun of what Bradley Foundation was up to. And after the Wall Street Journal did its little thing, in the next couple of days, they had to um, make an apology that their statement about this episode was so like what the National Review wrote that they apologized and they said, we did not plagiarize the National Review. <laughs> we just want everybody to know that. And of course, the answer to that is that's right. They did not plagiarize the National Review. Both the National Review and the Wall Street Journal editorial page were working off the same talking points that they'd been given. And they followed the talking points that they'd been given so closely that it looked like they'd plagiarized each other. That's the world that we're living in of this, you know, kind of dark money creepery. For daily content of all things Rhode Island and beyond, follow me on social media, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, yeah, even LinkedIn. Just search for me, Bill Bartholomew. Now back to B-Town. Arguably, addressing this dark money uh, could be described as perhaps one of, the, if not the White House doctrine and something you've certainly become known for. Another thing is obviously environmental issues. There's no question about it. It's something and they relate. That, pardon? They absolutely. They're two sides of the same coin. Absolutely. No question about it. And and it's it's shocking to see because environmental issues should be something that are apolitical. I mean, it's, yeah. it's fundamental. It's our, this is our vessel. We're all in it together. I, I read from your website, 12422, White House Sanders, Blumenthal, Warren, call out reek of politics and right-wing SCOTUS challenge to vital EPA climate authority. I guess explain this brief and, and this initiative and, and where this comes from, um, because it's something that hasn't really surfaced to the, 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 the top of um, the, the conversation politically, at least locally, probably not nationally, as a result of all of these other things going on. What is this? So way back when, when I still thought that the Supreme Court was on the up and up, uh, John McCain and I wrote a brief together to the Supreme Court after Citizens United, this decision that let unlimited money in politics go. And as you know, in, uh, in Citizens United, the court said, this unlimited politics, that we're, unlimited money that we're going to let go in politics is going to be okay. It's not going to be corrupting because it's all going to be transparent. Everybody's going to know whose money it is that's putting that ad up. And of course, that didn't happen. And so John and I wrote the brief to the court saying, hey, guys, you were wrong. The money you said was going to be transparent isn't. The groups that you said were going to be independent aren't. You were wrong about this and you need to reconsider. And since then, I've been writing briefs pretty steadily in the Supreme Court. I think the West Virginia one was my 15th. And sometimes it really lights up some of the right-wing members of the Supreme Court. Alito has been very grumpy about some of the briefs. Um, but this one was to kind of look behind the case that was being brought to urge the court to take away EPA's ability to regulate greenhouse gases. That's what the fossil fuel industry wants. So we pointed out first 
This is a whole boatload of fossil fuel front groups, everything from the West Virginia attorney general, who's a fossil fuel front, to all these other groups that take fossil fuel money and our fossil fuel fronts. This is not like legit outpouring of public opinion. This is a fossil fuel operation. Second, all the doctrines that they're asking you to adopt, these are all cooked up in right-wing hothouses. This is not real constitutional theory, or if it once was constitutional theory, it's been captured by these groups and contorted into something to protect their right to pollute, basically. And it was uh, a little bit of truth-telling, and I was super proud. First of all, I was very glad that both Elizabeth Warren, who's a very good friend, Bernie Sanders, who does not often sign on to briefs, and uh, Dick Blumenthal, who's done more Supreme Court practice than any senator, all signed on to the brief. And then the dean of the University of California Berkeley School of Law signed on to the brief. So the court can't, you know, the court may want to ignore me, but it's hard to ignore when a really major law school dean uh, is the counsel of record. Um, so I'm, I'm doing my best to bring a little bit of truth telling into that environment of a lot of fakery around the Supreme Court right now. Lots of fake groups uh, filing amicus briefs without disclosing who their donors are that aren't real groups. You know, they're designed just to file amicus brief briefs for other people. It's going to be fascinating to watch how the environmental question as a whole is discussed over the next 10, 20, 30 years and whether or not this actually changes from something that is manipulated for purely political purposes to, frankly, survival issues. I mean, yeah. we, here in Rhode Island, we, we I mean, the, the challenges are enormous. We see these maps that are projected. Yeah. Look at the storm tools maps. Go to storm to Google storm tools. Look at the Rhode Island maps. This is what we've got coming. Do you think it's going to shift? This is obviously just your pure opinion, but do you think it's going to shift away from being this political football and into something that's more based on human survival? I think a lot depends on how we address it as Democrats. You know, if we continue to talk about climate change as a thing that deals, you know, that's about polar bears and the future, then we're not going to do very well. If we can connect people's lived experience with it, the wildfires, the Midwestern floods, uh, the coastal storms, all of that, then I think we'll do better. And if we can tell the story of a fossil fuel industry that is basically running a giant covert operation against its own country to try to impede the ability of the American government, the government of the United States of America, to impede that government's ability to address these problems, um, that's a really important backstory because, you know, as, as important as the environmental issue is, and it's extremely important, the issue of government integrity, particularly in the U.S. democracy, is also really important. And when this dark money cabal can creep into government and control it this way and disable its ability to take on an issue as important as this, something's gone very badly wrong. And that's, that's as bad a pollutant in some respects of our um, political environment as the emissions that they emit are of our natural environment. Unquestionably. Uh, shifting here to Rhode Island, and, and, and it's a national conversation as well, quite frankly, but uh, Congressman Langevin announcing he won't be seeking re-election. Did you have a tip-off on that in any way, or were you kind of caught, caught by surprise when that announcement was made? No, Jim and I had been 
talking about about this um and um you know he's just an unusually wonderful human being when you think of what he deals with every day to get up in the morning and go about his business um and how difficult it is just to get down to washington and back with the um you know wheelchair situation having to board first and be put into his seat and then you know off board last and everything about what he has to go through day to day is a real chore and i've never seen the guy in a foul mood um he's always thinking about other people and doing great things um particularly for you know things like electric boat in his district where he's worked so hard for the submarine folks and but he's just really a very very special human being so he's going to be a big loss to the to the delegation but i know he's made the right decision for himself and um i will do whatever i can to be his friend in whatever he wants to do next not expecting an endorsement here but do you feel good about the the candidates that are kind of announcing or exploring and so on and so forth do you feel like it's going to be an, a, a race to determine who can best represent Rhode Island Congressional District to be a, an ambassador for Rhode Island, or is it becoming a all right? Who's up next in the political process? Whose turn is it for something? That's that's kind of yeah. the discourse on the ground. Do you feel good about the the roster of candidates so far? Yeah, I do. I think you know there are two things that are in my mind right now. One is um, there's some really good people who are putting their names forward in all of this. And you kind of have to applaud and celebrate that we've got people like that who are willing to put their names forward. And at the same time, there's that little devil in the back of my mind that is reminding me that Democrats lose races when we have bad primaries. And so I think not just uh, me, but I think the whole delegation is watching carefully to make sure that we don't blow it and lose a Rhode Island seat that could be dispositive in whether or not the Republicans, you know, Speaker McCarthy, could you, <laughs> that is not going to be good for Rhode Island. Um, this guy is really like MAGA headed and um, very, very dangerous on issues important to Rhode Island. And the idea that he's going to be Speaker of the House is um, not a good thing for Rhode Island. So if he becomes Speaker, because we lose a Rhode Island seat, we've all got a lot to answer for. So I think it's very important, not only um, that the delegation, but also that the participants in this race all understand that at the end of the day, it's not about them. Uh, it's about how Rhode Island is represented in uh, Washington, and, and it's about the balance of power in Washington and which side will help Rhode Island. And I think that's the uh, thing that we, we've got to bear in mind. I welcome everybody to the primary, but Let's not turn it into such a slugfest that we end up giving the seat away. Right. And it'll be interesting to see as well on the Republican side in this race, what role a MAGA type of Republican would play in terms of the existing Republican and independent base in Congressional District 2. I think we'll see that play out with Jessica De La Cruz, the state senator. And if he gets into it, former Cranston Mayor Alan Fung, where there could be a debate with or, or a battle within the party to say, OK, you got to play super far to the right to win the primary and then pivot to the left. 
that pivot to the left if the Democratic primary becomes a circular firing squad and yeah. Alan Fung makes it through. That could be dangerous given his ties to yeah. uh Cranston. And by the way, a mid-September circular firing squad with the election in November, right. not a lot of chance to recover if you've had a train wreck of a primary. Last question, uh, I guess just kind of reflecting or on or looking forward this year, anything that jumps out that what what are you looking to do? What what are you looking to do in DC this year? What what when you're you know this summer when you're on the sailboat and you're thinking about all right, what are the accomplishments we've got or what 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 God, is the I brainstorming? Hope I get, a to get out. We'll see. Yeah, let's hope. I do think that the um the biggest thing waiting out there right now is the reconciliation bill. You know, the one that we we're gonna use to do build back better. Yep. Now that's all blown up. And everybody's in kind of a cooling off period without negotiations even happening right now. But the fact of the matter is that we went to a lot of trouble and stayed up all night to pass a reconciliation measure that allows us to get what is allowed into the reconciliation measure passed with a simple majority. This is our pathway around the filibuster. And if we fail to take advantage of it, it is political malpractice of a very high order. So we really need to sort out what it is that can, this is a wagon that's just going to leave town once. It's the only wagon that leaves town that the Republicans can't filibuster. And we need to figure out what we can agree to as Democrats, the 50 of us, and get it on that wagon and get that wagon the hell out of Dodge before the uh, runway runs out September 30th. So to me, that's the big thing. And within it, the biggest thing that we can do is a serious piece of climate legislation. And um, as you know, I'm already ta- I've been talking to Manchin about this for uh, months, and those conversations are continuing. If we can land a big piece of climate legislation that actually has a major emissions reduction effect, then it will have been very much you know worth all the all the trouble. This is our last chance because without it. The Republicans are not going to come on board. They take too much fossil fuel dark money. They're just Mitch McConnell is at the end of the you know puppet strings of the fossil fuel dark money machine. So he's not going to let it happen. And God forbid the Republicans win the House next year, which a lot of people expect. Now you're not going to get anything climate related through a whole climate denying uh, caucus over there. So this is our chance. And if we miss it, I think history will look back and say, you idiots, how could you have missed it while you had the chance, knowing full well that this chance was going to disappear at the end of this Congress and perhaps not come back for a decade? Yeah, or longer, the monetary policy of the moment and all the factors in this particular moment are so significant. And it would be a big swing and a miss, to say the least, if it didn't go through. (laughs) Big swing and a miss, indeed. Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, as always, thanks so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Great to be with you, Bill. Rhode Island's podcast of record, B-Town.